The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well today. Um, Real quick, before we jump into our text, uh, which if you're looking for a spot to land in the Bible today, we're gonna be in Matthew um, and Mark, uh, Luke and John, um, and also Acts. So anyways, there you go. But before we jump in, a couple of things. First of all, I know it was on the video, but I do wanna remind you that if you've not been water baptized two weeks from now, we're gonna have a great time celebrating life change through water baptism. We talk about how it is the only biblical next step. Uh, so I encourage you to take that step if you're not signed up yet. I've been having some great conversations with a few different people that are getting baptized coming up. So that's gonna be fun. The second thing is this. I know we talk about the legacy wall, uh, the building that's happening, expansion that's happening here sometime towards maybe May, June, something like that. But I want to ask you to pray. We received the bids from the three contractors and uh, we're kind of comparing those right now, going through the process and just pray for wisdom. We want to make great decisions. We want to kind of follow how God would direct us on this journey. And uh, so that's kind of the next step over the next few weeks. That's going to be what's happening. So just be praying about that. And we appreciate it immensely. Also real quick, I guess to uh, that legacy wall, if you haven't looked through the brochure there, or even look to make a pledge, maybe uh, I encourage you to maybe t- uh, do that. You can take out the brochure, look at it. You can go online and see the details of where we're going and, and stuff like that. But uh, love for you to, to take a step with us if you haven't yet. Um, this has been, um, we've never done a series like this before. It's called Made to Crave, but the whole idea of it is really trying to stir that hunger for the scriptures. And so we've been talking about the Bible and, and what, when I say we've never done this before, what I mean is we've never taken on giant chunks of scripture in like one setting. So like today in 30-ish minutes, we're gonna tackle all of the gospels and the book of Acts. Last week, we talked about the wisdom and poetic literature in the Old Testament. The week before that, we took on the historical books and the prophetic books all in one. And so um, if you missed any one of these messages and you haven't listened, I would encourage you to go back and do that. I might give you a picture of kind of the, the, the whole thing. But today, like I said, we're going to tackle Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts as kind of a 35,000 foot overview of what it is. But let me go back just briefly and say this. Uh, when you go from the beginning in Genesis, it talks about this promise given to Abraham. And the promise is, you know, I'll make you a, into a great nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through you in a real nutshell. And that, that's what we see continue to play out as the nation of Israel then becomes the, the 12, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes. They end up in slavery in Egypt. They leave Egypt, uh, Moses, all that stuff. And then they establish this covenant with God, Sinai, the establishment of the nation, all this stuff. And then they are, you know, they, they try to get into the promised land. They finally get there. They establish themselves. So Joshua judges, judges is kind of a mess of leadership and bad decisions and all this stuff. And then the Kings, that's where you get Samuel Kings and Chronicles and David. And I said this, and there's a reason I'm saying all this, but I I mentioned how that was kind of the pinnacle of the nation of Israel was under King David and King Solomon. And, and the flame was hot. Like God's promises were evident. This is amazing. We have a King, we have our land. This is great. And then as other Kings come to power, the nation goes through all kinds of rebellion. It splits in two, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The prophets are like, turn back, repent, do what you're supposed to do. And, and it doesn't go very well for them. They end up in exile and, and all that stuff. And then you get to Malachi and Malachi really is chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. Um, and so Malachi, the, the nation of Israel is a disaster. They've been exiled. They've returned from exile. The Persian empire is kind of Lord or is ruling over the nation of Israel. And Malachi basically says this, serve God, don't turn away, repent of the 
the stuff where you're missing the mark, but trust God, he is faithful. He is gonna bring to pass the things that he said, and that's kind of it. And after that, there's 400 years of silence before you get to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and all that stuff. But let me real quick go over this, and there's a reason I'm doing this, but in between Malachi and the Gospels, in that 400 years of silence biblically, what you have is six different people groups or six different sort of empires that rule over Israel during this time. I already mentioned the first one is the Persian Empire, and that was from 549 to 331 B.C., Okay, that's where you get like uh, Daniel and, and uh, um, Esther and, and again, exile, they come back, all that stuff. That's where that is. And then the Greeks come to power and it's pretty short, but you might know the history of Alexander the Great and, and the conquering and all the stuff that he did. It was about nine years, so a pretty short span of time. But that's where Greek culture begins to become a thing around Judea and around kind of the Mediterranean and stuff. It begins to become a thing. And I say that because that's important to remember. After Greek rule, there's the Egyptian rule from about 320 BC to uh, 198 BC, um, Egypt rules. Now, ironically, remember Moses led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Well, they're, they're stuck under Egyptian rule again, but they're not slaves. They're still allowed to worship and do what they do as a nation. They're just not their own sort of nation during this time. This is where Hellenistic culture or Greek culture really begins to become a big deal. Now, the reason I keep saying this is because Greek culture perme permeates Judea and more and more Jews are speaking Greek. The reason I say that is because when you get to Paul and what Paul wrote to a bunch of different churches, Paul quoted from the Old Testament, but he used the Greek language of the Old Testament. And that's important, again, because you're studying history and how this all dovetails in. And, and so what you have is it's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what Paul uses when he's quoting a lot of times from the Old Testament. Testament. After uh, the Egyptian period of rule, Syrians take over and they rule from about 198 BC to 142 BC. Uh, the, the, the first, the Seleucids or Syrian Empire, Antiochus III, he was peaceable towards Judea and, and things were good. But after he passes away, his son Antiochus Epiphanes IV comes to power and Epiphanes literally means um, manifestation of a god. He was a horrible ruler to the Jews. He not only forced Hellenistic culture on Judea, but, but he tried to snuff out the Jewish faith during this period of time, and it was a terrible, terrible time. In fact, um, after a defeat by the Romans, he tried to blame the Jews and again tried to snuff them out and basically said, unless you renounce your faith in what you believe is the one true God, I'm gonna have you murdered, and it was this kind of big deal. Well, he passes away and that's where you have a period called the Maccabees or the Hasmonean dynasty. You're like, why are you getting in all this? Because what happened was um, a guy named Mattathias and his five sons, he was a priest in, of the Jews. He, he rose up with these other individuals, his sons, and created a rebellion. And they basically, for a period of time, overthrew the Syrian empire. And they enjoyed kind of this, this small window of freedom. But what happens as time goes on is these Maccabees that originally kind of redeemed Israel from occupation, kind of lorded over Israel here for, for this period of time from 142 to 63 BC. 
And the problem was they were so intertwined with Greek culture that the Maccabees or Hasmoneans forced it more and more into the Jewish culture. And, and, and there was things that were going on that, that the Jews absolutely didn't like. That there was a concentration of power that corrupted. They believed, the Maccabees believed that the ruler of the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, was also the high priest. And, and again, the Jews were in uproar over this and it created kind of these battles back and forth. But this is where, and the reason I say this is, this is where the Pharisees come into play. There was a group that we know as the Pharisees in the Gospels and they didn't like Jesus, but before that, they entered the picture because they rose up and said, you cannot allow the ruler to also be the high priest. That's not okay. And they did it anyways. The Sadducees, the same group of time, period of time rose up and said, we actually agree that the ruler can be the high priest and it's all good. And they kind of invited that Hellenistic culture into their world. And so there was this battle back and forth from way back. And again, this is the period between um, Malachi and the gospels. Finally, the Roman empire surfaces in 63 uh, BC, and they rule until 135 AD. So entirely during the time of Jesus, the gospels, all that stuff, it's the Roman empire. And we're probably familiar with that. You might recognize the name Herod. There were multiple Herods. There was Herod the Great. There was Herod Agrippa the first, uh, Herod Agrippa the second, as well as Herod Antipas. There were different Herods. And uh, you know, one of them in the beginning had a bunch of babies killed because he was threatened by this name Jesus and the whole shepherd's picture, all wise men kind of stuff. And then later on, on, you had another Herod that was uh, guilty of the beheading of John the Baptist. Later on, Jesus' crucifixion and then the persecution of the Christians in the book of Acts is another Herod. But again, these were rulers under the Roman Empire, but over the Jews. Finally, you get to Zechariah. He's doing his thing in the temple and he has a vision uh, and, or he has this angelic visitation and this whole picture of something going on. And what I'm saying is this. From Malachi all the way until the Gospels, it's barely an ember of God's promise coming true. And Malachi had said, hold on, hold on, hold on, repent, God is faithful, be faithful, watch what he will do. And 400 years goes by and they don't get anything. Finally, Zechariah has this vision and that's where you open up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let me, let me pause here for a moment and say this. Let, let me jump into the Gospels because what we, what we do is, and, and this is a little bit of an explanation, what we do is we'll say, this is the Bible. This is the scriptures, and it is. And I've said before, and I believe this wholeheartedly, God has given us something amazing in the scriptures. This is different than any other book in the world. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 talks about it's living and active, sharp on the double-edged sword, the way that it convicts, challenges, all that stuff all very true. But what we do is we take it for granted. And then some ignorant individual will come along and say, it's just some old book. It's just something a bunch of people wrote a long time ago. That's not the case. When you get into what it is, you have writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who were writing what they knew as eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus in the gospels. Gospel means good news. They're writing about the good news. What is the good news? That the promise of God that's barely an ember in Malachi and barely exists through 400 years years of extra biblical history begins to become stirred up again and the wind begins to blow on these embers as you get into Zechariah and Elizabeth and the promise of John the Baptist, as you get into Mary and Joseph and the promise of Jesus and she's pregnant, but they haven't done anything and everyone's kind of freaking out and Jesus is born and the shepherds and the wise men and all this stuff. But why is it that we go, it's Matthew, 
It's Mark, it's Luke, it's John. And some people would ask this, what about the gospel of Thomas? What about the gospel of James? What about the gospel of Peter? What about these other letters or books or things that were written about the life of Jesus that for some reason are not in the Bible? Why aren't they? Why is this what's the Bible? So let me give you a little window into history here. We didn't have this as the Bible until 367 AD. In the first century of Christianity, and even Jesus quotes back to it, and, and the apostles back in the day quoted the Old Testament or Old Covenant, and they pretty much agreed on what we have today as the Old Testament in our Bibles. Although in, in the Jewish religion doesn't call it the Old Testament, it's their scriptures, okay? We call it the Old Testament because we also have a new, and we'll talk about that in a second. So when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why is it these? Why are these in the scriptures, or why do we call these scripture? The word would be canon, the canon of scripture. Why did it take 367-ish years, 340 years to come up with this is what we believe? And let me try to explain it to you as briefly as I can. When you go back in church history and you find this in historical letters and historical uh, things that were written by individuals like Polycarp and Ignatius and, and early church fathers, they were writing about the church. It's just that this stuff isn't in the Bible. So they were talking about letters that were circulated. They were talking about how the churches had gathered to read certain texts. And, and what they did was over a period of 300 plus years, they would sift through and look at the language. They would try to figure out what was connected directly to an apostle. They would find things that they knew were from some of the you know, early apostles, John and Peter and, and Paul and things like that, and go, does the language match what we read in this letter or in this letter? And, and they did their work over a period of over you know, 300 plus years. They were taking time sometimes to meet in groups and to pray and to fast and to look in, in detail at these letters. What happens is in letters like the Gospel of Thomas or Peter or James, other letters that were written, what they found was they, they weren't sound to the language that was being used from the earliest church fathers or the apostles. They also found that some of the theology didn't match what was orthodox from the first century. There were stories in some of these that denied Jesus came in the flesh. Gnostics in particular, to know the idea that you can know that there's some God out there, but it's a higher power we can never know intimately. They believe that, that the idea of Jesus as the, the savior was more of a spirit, but not in the flesh. And so there were things in these gospels that didn't gel with core Orthodox theology going all the way back to the first century. And what, you know, guys like Paul and Peter and others had to say about who Jesus is. You have other things, and, and some of them were, were easy to sort of dispel, where it talks about Jesus healing by shooting lasers out of his eyes, or the idea that Jesus came back and he was, you know, nine or 10 feet tall and things like that. So some of them were easy to go, come on, are you kidding me? But others were more difficult. So they had a process and they would meet over time to fast and discuss and to pray about what is scripture. Let me read just a little bit. And again, I've had study Bibles and I've got all kinds of materials in my office and my computer that I use. But, but let, me, let me just read a little bit and maybe this helps put some of this together. The term canon means measuring rod or norm. Another idea is plumb line. Um, and was originally used to identify the set of standard doctrines for the church. From the 300s AD, it has referred to those books of Old and New Testament that are considered authentic scripture. Um, 
The church fathers of the early 100s, A.D., Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and I encourage you maybe write those down, look those up because it's a big deal. The church fathers similarly recognized the authority of the writings now constituting the New Testament, but they did not call them scripture. Then in the 200s and 300s A.D., a set of criteria for accepting works as genuine slowly emerged. An accepted book had to have been written by an apostle or someone connected to an apostle accepted by a majority of the churches um, from early on and understood as containing orthodox doctrine. In other words, it lined up with the belief systems, even going back to Old Testament understandings of God and, and the Messiah. The churches eventually came to a consensus and the New Testament canon was formalized in 367 AD by Anastasius of Alexandria. Of the official church councils, uh, the council in Laodicea in 363 AD accepted all but Revelation, while the councils in Hippo and Carthage, 393 AD and 397 AD, accepted all 27 books. I know that might not help you a ton, but what I'm saying is it wasn't just some willy-nilly throw those in there, keep those out. They had a process, and honestly, going back to theologians that have written for the last 2,000 years, there's an agreement that these things belong, and then they've been authenticated over and over and over, but there was a process. So let's jump into it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the Gospels. Matthew was written by the disciple Matthew. He was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. We know he was a tax collector that became a disciple that followed Jesus, saw the miracles, saw the teachings, was part of uh, you know, his, his whole three years of ministry in particular. What I love about the Gospel of Matthew is, first of all, he spends more time talking about Jesus' fulfillment as the Messiah than any other of the Gospels. He'll go back and quote text from some of the prophetic books in the Old Testament and say, this is why Jesus is the Messiah. He also spends a good amount of time reminding, and this is great for you and I today, reminding those people that say that they're followers of Jesus to be disciples, that our lives are meant to be transformed, are meant to be changed as we continue to encounter the living God through scripture, the living God through the work of the Holy Spirit in tandem with the scriptures. And so I love Matthew's theme. Gospel of Matthew. Then you get to Mark. Now, Mark was not directly a disciple. Another name for Mark is John Mark, and John Mark traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. That's for next week. We're going to talk about that. But one of the things that happened was Paul didn't like John Mark at one point because he felt like John Mark was a coward. So he says, hey, at one moment, they're going to do missionary journeys. Hey, let's bring John Mark. No, no, I don't want him. He, he's too afraid of stuff. Let's not bring him along. And then later on, the reconciliation of the relationship happens because as Paul is nearing the end of his life in martyrdom, you'll notice later on in Timothy, he'll say, send John Mark to me for I find great comfort in that relationship. And again, it's just a cool little window into what happened here. But this is the mark we're talking about when we say the gospel of Mark. So you say, well, if he wasn't a disciple, how do we get the gospel of Mark? The reason is because Mark was a good friend of Peter and Peter charged Mark with creating an account that came from Peter himself of what happened during the ministry of Jesus. Mark is short, it's only 16 chapters, and it's more action-packed than any of the other Gospels. He constantly is using language like, and suddenly, and then immediately, and, and, and then right then, and over and over. It's kind of this action-packed picture of uh, the life of Jesus. And once again, the theme there is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. 
So Matthew, Mark, then you get to Luke. Now, Luke, again, not a disciple. Luke also traveled with Paul in the book of Acts and some of the language written in the book of Acts talks about we because Paul was there. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and Luke wrote the book of Acts. Does anybody know who he wrote it to? One person. Yeah, a guy named Theophilus. He literally opens up both Luke and Acts with, you know, do Theophilus. I've done my best to investigate and do all this stuff. And there's two, two kind of trains of thought with where Luke came from. Luke was a physician that was either charged, paid by Theophilus to go out and investigate the truth of the message of Jesus, the gospel, the Messiah, like, is it for real? Or he was a friend of the Dr. Luke that went out and made account because he cared enough about Theophilus to try to help him understand Jesus really is the Messiah. We have more detail in the gospel of Luke than any other of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Okay, uh, like I said, he also wrote the book of Acts. He refers to Jesus more than any other as the son of man. And his theme, really, his passion in Luke was um, he came to seek and save the lost, and then you get to the gospel of John. And what I love about the gospel of John is that John was a disciple. John wrote the gospel of John and John refers to himself as the beloved of Jesus. I love that. Like he loved me more than the other guys, you know, like anyway, um, he also talks about how when they went to the tomb, he beat Peter to the tomb like it was a relay race. But anyway, so, um, but so, but I, what I love about John though is that intentionally John writes in a language that's meant for outsiders to understand who Jesus is, the way he describes the Savior, the way he describes God's love because of, of you know, who Jesus is. Some of the most basic verses in the world, some of you might know these from the last bunch of decades, but John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Again, you could give somebody the gospel of John and say, just read the gospel of John and you can understand salvation. You can understand why it's such a big deal. So you have these gospels. And like I said, within the gospels, you have this picture of what opens up in a couple of them, the Christmas story and shepherds and wise men and all this stuff. You have a couple of verses that talk about Jesus as a teenager, but then you have the ministry of Jesus. And the very first miracle he performed, anybody know what it was? Turn water into wine. You're like, wow, here we go. So his, his mom said, hey, they ran out of wine at the wedding, turned some water into wine. And Jesus is like, all right, you know, I got to obey my mom. So he did. Anyway, um, and from there on, Jesus is performing miracles and he's teaching crowds and he gathers the disciples. And for about three years, he travels around teaching about the kingdom of God. And he does it sometimes in parables. He does it more directly. But as time goes on, more and more people are like, wait a minute, could this be the Messiah? Now, that's a huge deal because there were other people that they wondered were the Messiah at different times. In fact, during the 400 years of silence we have in the Bible, there were different people that they thought, including Mattathias, the high priest, could he be the redeemer, the Messiah of Israel? They understood Messiah in the context of somebody who's gonna become king that's gonna release us from Roman occupation. And so little by little, like people like this guy, more and more people are following him. Jesus would get into a boat, cross the Sea of Galilee. And when he got to the other side, who would be there? Everybody. And they either wanted a miracle or a meal. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Maybe we can get some free food or maybe he could heal that guy's eyes. And so they wanted to see what this was about. But as time went on, there were rumors of maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the Christ we've been waiting for. 
And little by little, the religious leadership, as they got wind of that's the Messiah, they didn't want to believe it. And in fact, would try to deny it and became so jealous of Jesus' influence that they basically at one point said, you know what, I think it's time to get rid of him. And so as the gospels continue, the religious leadership, and this is where the Pharisees and Sadducees finally agreed on something. They said, let's just get rid of Jesus. And they conspired together to figure out how to do it. As that's happening, uh, Jesus is, is, you know, talking with the disciples. And at one point he says, who do people say that I am? Remember this? Some of you guys might remember. And, and, and the disciples, well, some say, you know, Elijah, some say, you know, uh, 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 Moses, whatever. Some say John the Baptist. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up first. And what does he say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't deny it. Okay, that's a huge moment. You can breeze right past it and check off the reading plan, but that's a huge moment. He doesn't deny it because, and again, for you and I, it's like cat's out of the bag, we already know, but bear with me. That's a huge moment. And over time, as Jesus is more and more getting towards crucifixion, moving towards Jerusalem, the heat is being turned up. He says, they're going to, you know, they're going to kill me. I'm going to suffer. But on the third day, I'll be raised to life. And the disciples are like, I don't quite understand what you're talking about. He, he talks in, in kind of figurative language to the religious leaders, but they want him killed. And then you get to this gathering of Jesus that you and I would call the last supper. What were they gathering for? Do you remember? Passover. Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, right? God had said right before the final plague, which was the killing of the firstborn, Pharaoh is going to finally let you go. But before you go, celebrate this Passover and do it every single year forever. So the disciples had gathered, well, all the Jews had gathered to celebrate God's faithfulness at Passover. And Jesus is gathered in this room. And at one point he grabs bread and he says, he breaks it and he says, take and eat. And what does he say? This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay. And, and again, we read that and go, great. Isn't that like communion? That's what we call communion. The Eucharist, the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. True. But remember, they weren't celebrating do this in remembrance of me. They were supposed to be celebrating do this in remembrance of God's faithfulness way back with Moses in Egypt and getting out of there. So Jesus reorients the, the, the biggest festival in the nation of Israel from that celebration to this is about me. It's a huge moment. And then what does he do? It says after supper, he took the cup and he said, take and drink each of you of the cup. This is the cup of, of my blood, the new covenant. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. He said new covenant. We read that, check it off and go, great. It was a big deal. He's not only reorienting Passover around him, he's taking what was the old covenant saying, that is now done. We are entering what's called the new covenant in my blood. And we take it for granted because we go, isn't that Jesus and the cross? Time out, don't go there. Jesus ends up taking this moment to reorient everything that used to be Israel around himself. The writer of Hebrews would later on say that old covenant is obsolete. Why? And what does obsolete mean? Obsolete means a newer, better thing has come along. And the writer of Hebrews says that covenant is obsolete because we're in a new covenant under the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. 
and they, they're in the upper room and the disciples don't question anything and they have this moment and he talks about betrayal and Judas runs away and they leave that place and they go to the garden and they're praying and all of a sudden soldiers show up with Judas and Judas, uh, uh, Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you came to do and Jesus is arrested. And the disciples run all kinds of directions and, and he's illegally tried and he goes from the Jewish court to the Roman court and back and forth and finally they're like, just crucify him, get it done with. And Jesus is crucified and Jesus is buried and all the disciples are freaking out and they're afraid and then Mary goes to the tomb where Jesus is buried except that there's something missing. Jesus. Okay, Jesus isn't there and Mary goes back to the disciples and is like, he's not there. And that's where at the end of the gospel of John, Jesus, or excuse me, uh, uh, John and Peter run to the tomb and John outruns Peter and wins the prize, okay? And John's proud of himself, but they're freaking out because they're like, where's his body? And then Jesus appears to a couple of disciples and then Jesus appears to the disciples in a room together and they freak out because guess what? He's not dead anymore. That's not normal. Normally people die and they stay dead. And Jesus didn't do that. And we all kind of cat out of the bag go, well, I already know this, but bear with me. He rose from the dead, proving that he's the Messiah and defeating what Paul would say is the last enemy and that's death. And therefore you and I have nothing to fear. Okay, so Jesus appears, they freak out. Um, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait and pray and the Holy Spirit is gonna be sent, but I gotta go. And he ascends into heaven and they're staring up there and angels go, now go pray like he told you to do. And guess what happens? The embers that were barely alive at the beginning of the gospels begin to be stirred and the flame is going. And this is like, wow, the Messiah showed up and did his thing and we're in a new covenant. And this is amazing. And now the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote down everything you know, Jesus began to do and to teach until the time he was ascended into heaven. And then they, they gather together and they're praying and it says the Holy Spirit comes. And it says the Holy Spirit filled them so much so that they were filled with a certain kind of power. Does anybody know what kind of power it was? There's a Greek word used here intentionally. It's the same word for dynamite. They were filled with dunamis power. Why do I say that? Because what was a flame during King David and Solomon became an ember in Malachi. What was barely going at all when they blew back the ashes from the top of the fire that was raging before began to fan into flame again with Jesus. And then Jesus was dead and they were disillusioned. And then he rose again. They're like, this is full of hope. But little did we know there was a fuse running from the embers to what would become the church. And the fuse goes off, or the, the dynamite goes off, and Peter stands up, and people go, they're drunk. And he's like, we're not drunk. This is what Jesus said would happen. This is what Joel said would happen. Jesus, whom you guys crucified, rose from the dead, and that's the message we need to live by. And fast forward, you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and Peter says during his second sermon, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And all throughout the book of Acts, it's Peter and John and they're praying and they're seeing people come to faith in Christ and there's people of high influence and there's people of low influence and there's a lot of Jews that come to faith in Christ and there's a few Gentiles and they get a little mad about it. And Peter feels a little uncomfortable that Gentiles could be Christians. He does. And it takes a while, by the way, for the movement of Jesus to get outside the walls of Jerusalem. And persecution happens. And Paul, who was Saul, sees this persecution and gives approval and is like, let me chase him down and kill him too. 
until Jesus shows up in his life. And Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes a preacher of the gospel and on three different missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean, preaches sermons and sees all kinds of people give their lives to Jesus. He establishes churches all over and that's where you get Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, all of those. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love for mankind. We'll get to Romans through Revelation next week. But can I just say this? This whole picture, you guys, that God has painted was for you and me too. That you talk about what Peter was saying during the first sermon, when the people are cut to the heart, like, what do we do? And in the same way today, maybe you're here and you don't know where you stand with Jesus or you've heard religious stuff before or invited him in before or whatever. Maybe you never have done that. But can I tell you something? If you wanna find forgiveness, it's not gonna be in your good works. If you wanna find forgiveness, it's not gonna be because you earned it or whatever it is. It's gonna be because you surrendered to what Jesus has already done for you. If you want to find hope, if you want to find life, if you want to find you know, the, the, the kind of life that God provides, it's in Christ and it's because he's already done the work for you. But Jesus says in Rome, or sorry, Paul says in Romans 10, nine through 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. That's how you're saved. That's where salvation is. It's in what God has done through Jesus. And if you're here today, and you go, I don't know where I'm at in this conversation, but you want a fresh start? You've invited them in before, but you've done your thing, but you want to start today? Then I want to say the message is for you and you're not here by accident. And if you want to invite Jesus in to be the Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sin, to give you a fresh start, to give you a clean slate, it's by believing on what God has done in Christ. It goes back to that John 3, 16, God so loved you that Jesus went to the cross. And if you want that new beginning, in a moment, I'm just gonna ask you on the count of three to raise your hand. I'm gonna ask you just to pray a prayer with me. I'm not gonna ask you to bow your head. I'm not gonna ask you to close your eyes. I'm gonna ask you to boldly declare, I want a fresh start in Jesus. If that's you, on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three, where are you at? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, balcony. You can put your hands down, 11. Anyone else? Besides those 11 that raise your hand, anyone else? I just wanna invite Jesus in. If you raise your hand, I'm gonna ask you to repeat a simple prayer after me. It's not about the words of the prayer. It's about believing on what Jesus has done and, and believing as you pray and invite him in that you get a new beginning today. So if you're one of those that raise your hand, just pray after me. And if you've already prayed this prayer, you can pray with me. Just say, Jesus, thank you for all you've done. I believe that you love me enough to pay the price for all of my mistakes, all of my sin. Come into my heart, be my savior, from sin and be the Lord that I follow you each day. Thank you for a new beginning. It's in your name, Jesus. We pray. Amen. Would you give a hand to 11 people that just prayed that prayer today? Because I think that's awesome. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.